0: Thanks for downloading Development Drums, my name is Owen Bader at the Centre for Global Development, and my guest today is Toby Ord, British Academy postdoctoral fellow in philosophy at Balliol College. He's also a research associate at two of Oxford's research centres, the Yohiro Centre for Practical Ethics and the Future of Humanity Institute. Toby is interested in ethics not just from an academic point of view, but he's also very engaged in what this means in practice. He's decided to give away more than half his lifetime income and to use that money to improve the lives of people in poor countries. And he's founded an organisation called Giving What We Can to bring together people who also want to give away a substantial part of their income and to help them to do so effectively. Toby, welcome to Development Drums.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we're going to talk in the second half of the podcast about giving what we can, but I'd like to start off by exploring with you some of the ethical underpinnings of your view that we have a moral obligation to give money to people in poor countries. And I've heard, I've, I've heard some of the talks you've given in the past, and you said that your interest in this was triggered in part by looking at cost-effectiveness calculations, um, particularly in global health. Lots of people who listen to this will have heard vaguely of quality-adjusted life years, mm-hmm and they'll know that that's something to do with how we measure cost-effectiveness in health. But can you tell us something about qualities and alleys and, and what all that means and why, why that focused your attention on this question?
1: Sure. Uh, I think that that's a very good starting point. Uh, so when it comes to uh, thinking about cost-effectiveness in aid and trying to work out uh, what leads to the most improvement in people's lives, you need to have some kind of a metric or way of comparing these different things. Uh, And that can often stop people if they can't think of an easy way to compare uh, even two different ways of helping people in terms of their health. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they're different illnesses or one is a life-saving operation, whereas another one is uh, curing blindness, Mm -hmm. and they might not be able to compare them. Uh, So there are techniques for comparing them, and they're not perfect, uh, but they're good enough to to get somewhere. Uh, So the most intuitive idea is to say, how many lives did you save? but that's not a very good uh, metric, uh, because it really depends upon uh, how much life you saved. Uh, there's this truism in public health that no one ever really saves a life. Uh, all they do is stop the person dying at that point, and the person still dies at some later point. And if that later point is three hours later, uh, then it's you know not really that uh, much of an improvement. Uh, whereas if that point is 30 years later, it's a very big improvement. Uh, so there's a move then uh, to say, instead of lives saved, let's look at uh, how many years of life saved uh, but even then there's a bit of an issue that uh, in some cases there are quality quantity trade-offs uh, so for example it could be the case that someone uh, has an option uh, to cure cancer with or, well uh, yes to cure cancer with uh, invasive chemotherapy and it could be that this lowers someone's quality of life by quite a lot mm-hmm. um, but extends the duration of their life and it's not obvious whether they should set, accept this trade-off uh, and there are also cases like uh, curing blindness which improves someone's quality uh, without changing the quantity So what uh, health economists and moral philosophers together have come up with uh, is a system uh, where we look at how many years of life uh, someone has and we weight each of those years of life by the health-related quality um, as a percentage. And so it could be that if you've got uh, some uh, moderately severe illness uh, that your health quality is 90% of full quality, say. And if you've got quite a severe illness, it could be only half as as good as a year at full health. And
0: how do, how do we work out what the quality of life is for somebody, say, you know, somebody who uh, um, unfortunately goes blind, what, what, what has that done to their quality adjusted life years?
1: So it's quite hard to work this out, <laughs> and uh, uh, the number of life years is much easier to get a grip on. Uh, but to work out the quality, uh, a lot of, well, there are various techniques, uh, but one of the main things involves giving people surveys uh, where they ask them, A series of questions about different medical conditions and how bad it would be to have them. Uh, So in particular to consider Mm -hmm. trade-offs. So one of the popular versions of this is the time trade-off where you say, uh, would you rather have uh, uh, 10 years of life at full quality of health or 20 years of life but be blind for those 20 years if they were your only options? And uh, in that case uh, a lot of people are about even on them. and so then what they do is they set the quality weighting of blindness to be, to be about half uh, right. because of that, uh, whereas uh, for many other illnesses uh, you don't need to offer as many as 20 years before they'll accept uh, this trade-off um, of, of life with that condition.
0: And is there kind of broad consensus? If you ask, say, a group of people in the UK yeah. that question, do they cluster around a, a similar kind of weighting or or is there a, a big variance? Are people uh, I'm, not, to I'm not really
1: sure how big the variance is on this, okay. uh, but. Uh, Definitely, there there have been a lot of experiments where they've asked people to try to elicit these quality weightings with a number of different questions and a lot of tests to see how these different questions correlate with each other and so forth, Uh, including trying to uh, ask people in more in-depth interviews uh, and try to explain exactly, to get them to really think seriously about the situation, what would it be like if you had this condition, Uh, ideally to to talk to many people who've had the condition, to Mm -hmm. talk to people who've had the condition and then were cured of the condition, uh, and to talk to doctors who deal with the condition uh, regularly. Uh, there is a lot that could go into this. It's also not clear that it would be the same for everyone. Um, So it could be the case that for one person being blind is not so bad or for another person it's very bad, depending on uh, their interests and their job. Uh, But what we're trying to look at typically is the answer to population-level questions. Uh, So is it the case that we should fund this program which will avoid um, 10,000 cases of of malaria versus another program which will avoid uh, 1,000 people going blind? And so, at that point, you want to get the population averages anyway. Right. And so it doesn't matter so much yeah, whether it's
0: whether it's. Yeah. Uh, and we- and so you you have these measures of quality-adjusted life years. What is it you then do with those?
1: Good question. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the measures themselves, as you can see, are not uh, perfect uh, for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. I mean, if, if someone says that the waiting for blindness is point five, uh, and someone else thinks it really should be point four. Uh, It's pretty hard to work that out. Um, So they should be taken as reliable only to within, say, plus or minus 20% or something like that. Uh, However, what's really interesting is that if you look at uh, a uh, selection of interventions uh, in developing countries, uh, you get a really wide disparity in how cost-effective they are in terms of qualities produced.
0: So give us an example.
1: So uh, as an example, uh, there's a a volume uh, produced by the uh, Disease Control Priorities Network, DCPN, um, and the, the current version is the second edition. And in that, uh, they assess more than hundred different interventions in health uh, in developing countries, and they look at uh, how cost-effective they are in terms of these qualities per uh, well dollars per quality is mm-hmm. what they look at, and the range that they found uh, was between about uh, about thirty thousand dollars per quality uh, to about three dollars per quality. Uh,
0: so, so, what, so what kind of thing costs $30,000? Uh,
1: so treatment for for uh, an illness called sarcoma, uh, uh-huh. which is an AIDS-defining illness, uh, is at about $30,000 per quality. Okay, so, so
0: giving people an AIDS treatment, pe- people who have HIV AIDS and who have this condition, that, that costs $30,000 per quality adjusted life year? Yes,
1: uh, to, treat that condition. to treat that condition. And it's, it's quite interesting, actually, if you look at the HIV uh, treatments... Uh, I haven't uh, got the numbers with me, but uh, you find that uh, that it's much more effective to instead use antiretroviral drugs um, mm-hmm. as an HIV intervention. Uh, and then it's quite a bit more effective, again, uh, to distribute condoms and quite a bit more effective, again, uh, to educate uh, sex workers uh, right. about the risks. And uh, together, um, you get something like... A factor of 500 uh, between the least effective and most effective HIV interventions. So even so it within a single cause. It's
0: 500 times more cost-effective to educate high-risk workers about HIV AIDS than it is to treat diseases that are associated yes,
1: with AIDS. Yes, or this particular disease, uh, Kaposi's okay. sarcoma.
0: In terms of the number, in terms of the quality, of quality adjusted life years that you save exactly. by doing that.
1: exactly. So in terms okay. of the kind of that measure of health improvement uh, for the population Uh, And
0: presumably there are things that are cheaper still outside. Yes, uh,
1: that's right. Uh, So in the uh, in this report, uh, it gets down to about three or four dollars per quality adjusted life year uh, for uh, as listed there uh, for treatment of uh, neglected tropical diseases, in particular that was uh, soil transmitted helminth uh, infections, uh, so deworming programs, uh, and also hygiene promotion. Uh, Were both estimated to be uh, between three and four dollars per per year of uh, quality-adjusted life. So that the way of thinking about that is uh, is how much does it cost to give an entire year of healthy life to someone? Or it might not be an entire year of life at full health. It might be improving 10 years, which were at 90%, and moving them up to full health or right. or some combination of these things. It can be a little bit, therefore, hard to to get a nice crisp picture of it. Uh, but what's really interesting is that even if, as I said, the, the health weights could be out by 20% or something, uh, if you do have interventions, which... Uh, uh, estimated to be a thousand times more effective than other interventions, uh, then this type of twenty percent thing is uh, is not so relevant so this
0: big difference between the most cost effective interventions and the least cost effective interventions that seems to be something that that has struck you as being important in terms of the way we respond and, and the way and the choices we make tell us tell us why this big variance matters so much
1: well uh, uh, it, i mean it matters a great deal uh, so There's uh, many things you can say about it. One of the interesting things is that the least effective interventions which were studied are about as effective as uh, the marginal healthcare spending in the UK. Mm. Uh, So if you look at what uh, the NHS is prepared to spend uh, for a year of healthy life, uh, it's around about £20,000, which is about $30,000. So it's about the same amount as this uh, Kaposi sarcoma treatment. Um, So they would uh, fund all of these interventions which were studied. However, it's interesting that there are many interventions which are not getting enough funding, and there's still room for more funding, uh, where they would produce, uh, uh, as far as we can tell, um, a thousand or even ten thousand times as much benefit. Um, So, this would be a case where we're helping, uh, using money, say, to help uh, uh, British people, uh, which could help. Uh, by the same amount, a uh, 1,000 people uh, in developing countries, or 10,000 people.
0: So all the things in the UK that you could do for, say, 10 or $15 per quality adjusted mm-hmm. life year, we're already doing. And the, the cut-off that you've described, the, which is the National yes. Institute for Clinical Health and Excellence cut-off, is where they're deciding which, which treatments at the margin they're prepared to fund, which things are just inside, and, and that, in that case, is $30,000. Uh, so,
1: so that's exactly right. Uh, so what uh, NICE, uh, this this institute, do uh, is to basically order all of the, uh, the interventions they can do in the UK uh, to order them by their cost effectiveness right. and then to fund them from the most effective down to the least effective until they run out of money. And the point at which they know that they're, they'll run out of money is at about £20,000 um, or £30,000, somewhere in that range. Uh, so they set that as their cutoff. And uh, I think that there's a lot to be said for when thinking about funding development uh, interventions uh, to think about them in terms of cost effectiveness uh, and to do a similar approach to fund the most effective ones first um, and then fund uh, you know progressively downwards uh, using our budgets. Uh, so this is, uh, if you do that, um, then, well, if you take the example with the UK, uh, by doing that, uh, NICE uh, end up, Uh, producing the greatest amount of health benefit they can for their budget. So to do anything other than that, they would be producing less health benefit for the people of the UK. And so it seemed that the onus would be on them to explain why they want to produce less health benefit.
0: So there are a lot of people, uh, uh, I think, working in development, who find this a slightly kind of desiccated approach, this idea that we're all numbers on a spreadsheet, Mm -hmm. and some authority is going to maximise the health benefit for the population they're serving. And they want to live in a country where a doctor treats the patient in front of them. And if you have an expensive disease, they treat that. And if you have a cheap disease, they treat that. And that we should all be respected as individuals. And we we all have the disease we have or have the disability we have. And the idea that we should sit around crunching numbers to figure out, you know, uh, I think Sarah Palin referred to death panels. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was referring to the National Institute for, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for um, oh, oh, Health and Clinical Excellence. So, wh- what what do you say to people who say that this kind of approach that you're talking about, uh, this is not moral philosophy, this is this is immoral philosophy. This isn't treating people as people; it's treating people as numbers.
1: Well, uh, so it's it's an interesting uh, style of argument, and I think that there's an interesting uh, response to it. One thing to say is that. Uh, we'd like to live in uh, a country uh, where they just funded everything regardless of uh, cost, um, uh, so long as they funded everything. Um, if, there, if it was a country where one person comes in and has a very expensive disease and they fund them, and then the next thousand people come in and can't be funded, can't be treated, uh, and have terrible diseases uh, that uh, a more sensible allocation of funding would have actually prevented, uh, then it's not so clear we'd want to live in that country. Um, so that's the first thing to say. Um, if it was this ideal utopia where we have enough money, yeah, we'd love that. But that, that's not really the relevant consideration, which is what should, what should we do given our budgets? Uh, so I mean, we could also increase the budgets, uh, but we actually don't have enough money, even if, say, in America, they spent uh, the 100% of their GDP on health, uh, there's not enough money to, uh, to fund all of these things. Uh, so it's not just a case of arguing for increased yeah. budget. Uh, also, I'd say that uh, that I think that the idea of having the doctors uh, treat the patient in front of them uh, to the, and do whatever's in the interest of that patient is a great idea. Uh, and rather than have a system where the doctor feels um, that you know, they're, they're always constantly second-guessing, uh, you know, is it worth this medication, is it not, and so on, because I know this is a very expensive one. Uh, what they do in the UK is that they've got, uh, they remove that layer. And so uh, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence make these decisions Uh, they be the kind of bad cop in the situation and they tell the doctors what treatments the doctors are allowed to approve for their patients and then the patients act as the advocates for the sorry the doctors act as the advocates for their own patients so it's a nice way of i think um, separating that out into a couple of levels to allow the doctors to be just more benevolent to their patient
0: right okay so the key point here is that you have we have constrained resources Mm -hmm. and and within a set of constrained resources we're going to try and get the biggest impact that we can, yeah. in this case, for health. Yes. And your comparison was interesting between what we're prepared to pay in the UK, $30,000, mm-hmm. and the kinds of amounts we're prepared to pay in developing countries. yes. And one of my colleagues, Amanda Glassman, at the Centre for Global Development, she's asked me to press you a bit on this notion of comparing across countries. Mm-hmm. And her hypothesis is that these choices about what are priorities and what's cost-effective are essentially national decisions that different countries should make, whereas you're making an explicitly international comparison across countries. What's What's your response to her point?
1: Well, uh, it would be uh, nice if we could have her here in person, as <laughs> uh, as uh, to some extent I have trouble making sense of this, uh, this comment. So, uh, I mean, this was driven home to me quite forcefully, just as I'm an Australian citizen and I'm living in the UK, uh, and so, if uh, the the government of the UK says uh, we need to do this thing for British people, uh, you know, I really wonder what's so special about British people. Uh, it's much easier to get caught up in in these uh, uh, kind of nationalistic or uh, patriotic uh, endeavours if you're within your home country. Um, but once the kind of spell is broken on that, and you think, well, hang on, you know, I just like to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care if they've got a British passport, uh, or you know, or an Australian passport, or, or whatever. Uh, it seems that uh we have a kind of moral duty uh to uh to look beyond that uh just as we look beyond uh, their skin color and, and so forth
0: so i 'd like to come back to that in a second mm-hmm. but uh, this this brings us very neatly to uh i think a, a bit of a bit of moral philosophy, and mm-hmm. that is after all uh, what you do um uh, to 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 step back and and think about um consequentialism the idea that the way we should make choices is by looking at the consequences for a group of people. Can can you explain to us what consequentialism is and tie it to utilitarianism and how how should we understand these things? And remember, most of your audience are not moral philosophers. These are development people.
1: Yes. Uh, So uh, utilitarianism, uh, to start with, uh, is a uh, theory of ethics, uh, which is to say that whenever you're uh, trying to make a a decision, you're you're trying to produce an action, uh, that the right action to, to do is the action that will lead to the most happiness. So the greatest mm-hmm. sum of happiness among all people and animals or anything else that could be happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, Jeremy Bentham said the amount of uh, pleasure minus pain or happiness minus suffering or something in those right. uh, in that direction. There's debate about exactly what. Uh, now, there's also debate about a number of other aspects to do with this idea. Uh, so some people like the general approach, but they say uh, we should also weight in uh, equality, uh, as well as just the sum of benefits. We should think about the distribution, or they disagree about what exactly constitutes welfare for an individual. Uh, so there's a large cluster of theories uh, where you could take different opinions on these different aspects. And uh, the cluster of theories is called consequentialism. And so utilitarianism is one of the many consequentialist theories. It says that what we should uh, maximize with our actions is the sum of happiness. But you could also say it's an equality-weighted sum of happiness, or it's it's something else altogether. It could involve justice, for example, within the uh, the benefits you're trying to produce. But the idea is that you look at the outcome, uh, you look at what happens in that outcome, and that is the sole determinant of what you do. Now, the uh, there so are many. So, in the effect, the end
0: justifies the means. That that the, the, you look at the ends, and that that determines whether it's a good action
1: or not. Yeah, uh, that, that that's that's a. I mean, that's a, a slight simplification, but that's a pretty good. Okay. Uh, explanation. So, uh, now that
0: sounds when, that sounds like it's kind of obvious. The way you should judge the moral worth of an action is, is what effect it has on people added up in some way and, yes. and effect defined in some sense as being to do with their welfare. So what, tell us about the, the alternative ideas that would compete with consequentialism mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a moral framework.
1: Well, so the, there's two main uh, rival schools of thought, uh, one of which is uh, called deontology, Uh, Which is uh, the view that ethics is fundamentally about uh, rules of some sort, unbreakable moral rules. For example, you might think of the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, or you might think of uh, uh, Kantianism and this idea that uh, you ought to act only if the maxim on which you act could be rationally willed to be universally followed or something like that.
0: That's often called the golden uh, rule, isn't it? The, uh, that you should treat other people as you would wish to be treated. Ah, you. well,
1: it's slightly different. This is a... Okay. Kant uh, so didn't like the golden rule, actually. The golden rule is, in fact, a bit more similar to uh, to utilitarianism, which is to think, how would I like to be treated? Well, that's to kind of increase my own welfare. Okay. And so I should just act to increase everyone's, the sum of everyone's welfare. Um, that's, in some ways, a more natural interpretation, I think, of the golden rule. Uh, mm-hmm. But... but uh, Kant had more the idea of what if everyone did it, um, which is a little bit different. Uh, uh, But uh, deontologists, uh, if they're to have a plausible theory, I think, then they have to care about consequences. Um, But they don't care solely about consequences. So they say there are other things that matter as well. Uh, For example, uh, you couldn't uh, murder an innocent person uh, in order to create a greater benefit than that.
0: Okay, so moral philosophers have these stories of fat men on railway lines, yeah. and and you you have this choice about can you divert a runaway train um, so that it will slam into uh, a person on a railway line, but by diverting it, you have stopped a, 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 you know the train from running into a schoolyard full of children, and and the the story from, from a deontological point of view is that you cannot. Uh, murder this one person in order to save the schoolyard full of children?
1: Yes, well, well, deontologists have very complex answers about, about these things. Uh, consequentialists tend to have very simple answers. They'll say, um, so long as we're uh, assuming we're taken into account all the consequences of this action, um, it's not that there are going to be spillover effects that will incentivise certain behaviour in the future which will have bad effects and so on. Assuming we, we can bracket all of that and that all works out, uh, then uh, we should generally lead to saving the greater number. so if you had to divert the train uh, so that it hit one person but saved five uh, then you should do that deontologists sometimes will support that but it it can depend upon subtleties about how the case is set up Uh, they might say it's uh, not okay to use a person as a means to an end um, but it is okay if the person dies as a side effect Uh, so they have more complex debate about that Uh, the third school is virtue ethics uh, which is a view more about um, thinking about your own character and that uh, what ethics is fundamentally about is about displaying certain excellences of character or the virtues. Uh, So uh, compassion and uh, uh, love and honesty, integrity, things like this. Uh, So I think that you can actually marry together quite a lot of these ideas within a consequentialist framework, a fairly sophisticated consequentialist framework. Uh, But in terms of the main ideas that I support, uh, what I would say particularly characterizes my views is that they're very consequence sensitive uh, but they are not. They don't have to be consequentialist. Uh, so consequentialists, because they're concerned with consequences, are very interested as to whether a particular thing you will do will save 10 people or save 100 people. Uh, mm. Because that's a really big difference. It's 10 times bigger than the difference between saving 10 people and saving no one. Right. Um, so it 's just much more important to make that second move say from from zero to ten and then ten to one hundred, and to, that we really need to care about uh, these issues of scale, even if they sound like boring numbers to us because it's and the, using the numbers is a shorthand for kind of looking all of those hundred people in the eye or all of the extra ninety people in the eye and seeing that um, if we cavalierly disregard their benefits then that 's a real problem for real people uh, that 's the idea there now. In, when it comes to thought experiments and moral philosophy, uh, there's a lot of uh, heat uh, you know, on these issues about uh, coming up with uh, very complicated thought experiments where um, what if you had to, uh, to murder 10 people to save 100 people and you had to right. kill them in cold blood. Would you have and, killed Hitler? You know, or yeah, or right. things like this. And these things often divide people's opinions. Um, however, when it comes to aid, I think that there's uh, a lot less reason to, to have divided opinions because in a lot of cases... Uh, choosing to donate to one charity over another is not going to violate any of these conditions uh, that uh, dermatologists sometimes call side constraints, where they might think, yeah, you can, you can try to do what helps more people and makes the, the best benefit within certain side constraints. Right. Um, so it doesn't really run into that. The other thing that comes up that's a big difference is that uh, as well as side constraints limiting what you can do, they also have a concept of options, uh, which are things that you're always allowed to do, even if they wouldn't kind of increase the, the sum of welfare. Uh, so the idea is that uh, you know, maybe in your, uh, in your personal life, you're allowed to marry whoever you want, uh, even if it turned out that marrying a particular person right. would enable you to do more good in the world. Um, you can, you've got the choice, you've got the yeah. options. Right. And maybe in your family and so on, you've got other options. You can go to the zoo. You know, it's, it's not impermissible to go to the zoo if you know, that means you couldn't do as much good. Uh, so, they have this idea of having uh, options as well. And uh, often uh, giving money uh, to aid organisations is counted as an option. And uh, often, when we think of the word charity, we think of it in that sense that it's mere charity or, you know, it's, it's optional.
0: It's a nice to have if, if, yeah. you, if you want to.
1: And they're happy to admit that it's better to do it than to not do it. Uh, but they don't think that that's, uh, that's enough reason to say that we have to do it.
0: You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Varder, and my guest today is the moral philosopher Toby Ord. We've talked so far about the idea that we should make moral choices according to what will have the biggest overall impact for the most people. In the next part of the programme, we're going to be talking about some of the possible objections to that. And then in the final part of the show, I'm going to ask Toby to tell us about the choice he's made as a result of this thinking. Before we get into that, let me plug a different podcast about development produced by my colleagues at the Centre for Global Development. The Global Prosperity Onecast is shorter, snappier, looks at some of the recent work that the Centre's been doing, and you can find it at the Centre for Global Development website. So the idea that we should judge an action according to its consequences. It seems quite appealing. You've, you've talked mm-hmm. about some of the alternative views, mm-hmm. but but they all seem, as you were saying in your own work, you're you're um, developing a way of thinking about how these ideas converge. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everybody accepts consequentialism, um, and um, it comes up in uh, noticeably in, in... We had Peter Singer on Development mm-hmm. Drums, and if, if listeners haven't listened to that, episode 15 really worth listening to so we don't don't need to go through it in detail but for people who haven't listened to that um, the discussion there is this famous moral philosophy question about which you were touching on just now about options the the question is do we have an obligation to give up a luxury for example in order to save a life can you tell us a bit about that
1: Uh, yes Uh, so uh, in our lives in uh, in rich countries uh, assuming that's where your listeners are Uh, we have uh, many luxuries in our lives and uh, the money that we spent on these these things uh, could go very far towards helping people in the much poorer countries and helping the poorest people within those countries and and, uh, in uh, some cases uh, we could realistically uh, save someone's life uh, for uh, it's somewhat difficult to get numbers on this because the estimates vary uh, as we get more information uh, but probably a couple of thousand dollars
0: So, Peter Singer's example was, you're you're walking through a park, and there's a child drowning in a lake, and you've just bought a new suit for $2,000, and the question is, do you wade into the lake to save the child, but ruin your expensive new suit, or do you think, solve that, I've just paid £2,000 for this new suit, and, you know, let the child die, and in that case... Most people think, well, no, you you have some kind of obligation to to wade in and, and save the child. That's right. And what what conceivable opposition could there be to that? Right? Who could disagree with that?
1: Uh, pretty much, no one disagrees with that.
0: So the problem comes when you when th- that it isn't a question whether you give up one luxury, but where does that stop? Right? Does that mean that, because there's always some luxury, some further luxury that one of us could give up and save another child.
1: Yes. Uh, So this idea of the kind of iterated uh, uh, predicament uh, is what uh, I think causes a lot of concern for people uh, when they think about this. So if you think, uh, I mean, so Singer's point, uh, obviously, was that uh, we're in a similar situation uh, to the drowning child situation every day. Uh, because we could donate money to the most effective uh, means of life-saving, or right. if you think there's something even better than using life-saving uh, things, you think it's more important to have certain empowerment or educational programs, well, if they're even more important than the life-saving one, and you'd be obliged to do the life-saving one, surely you're obliged to do them. Right. Uh, and some people, I think, stop already at that point, and they have some idea that, that this is charity, and that somehow that charity kind of means optional. Um, and even before they've thought about this iteration, uh, they uh, they want to stop. Whereas other people maybe get a little bit further, uh, but then it dawns upon them this kind of precipice of, uh, well, I have to give my first £2,000 up or $2,000, and then my next $2,000, and then my next $2,000, and and where will this stop? Um, uh, Singer uh, quite correctly points out in the the paper where he introduces this problem uh, that you wouldn't have to stop at the point where you're as poor as the person you're trying to help, um, because what you would actually would want to stop at is the point at which it would be less productive to give more money away which could happen quite a lot earlier. Uh, for example if you can no longer afford to live in town where you work or something like that uh, it's very important that you keep your job in this case because you could do so much with your money. Uh, so. Uh, it might also be that you'd be passed up for a promotion if you uh, if you weren't uh, going down to the pub with your boss, you know, on a, on a Friday night or something like that. So there could be quite a few things uh, which it turns out the optimal life course you could take uh, would include these luxuries in it. Um, but
0: nonetheless, it does it does suggest an obligation much greater than oh yes, most yeah. people accept in their life. And one thing that seems to be, you know, if I if I talk to my friends about this. They seem to think there is a difference between your obligation to someone in a pond drowning in mm-hmm. front of you, and your obligation to somebody far away in, yes. in in a developing country, for example. And there does seem to be, you know, what, again back to the, the idea that moral philosophers and economists are these desiccated calculating mm-hmm. machines. You know, we treat every every life, every quality uh, as equal, but most people that isn't how most people experience moral values. You know, they, they think that they would look after their family first, mm-hmm. and then they would look after their community and their neighbours, and maybe they'd care about their compatriots. But, but the, most people think there's a kind of sliding scale of, of connection between them and, and fellow human beings, and would be quite surprised by the idea that we have as great a moral obligation to somebody in Malawi as we do to somebody down our street. Would, uh, yes. Explore that for us a bit.
1: Well, uh, it's interesting to try to work out uh, what disanalogies there are between uh, the uh, uh, the drowning uh, child case and more typical cases of aid, uh, and to see if there's any real principle place at which people could draw a line. Uh, one thing is that we might be suspicious, if we're trying to work out what ethics demands of us, or what, what uh, morality demands of us, we might be suspicious of people who say, oh, it demands... Um, uh, it doesn't demand that I give up that much money uh, because in the same way as we would normally be suspicious if someone uh, happens to choose the option suppose you're in a business and they happen to choose the option which means they don't have to move town you know, and they say that's the best option for the company and you might think well are you really thinking that there's, there's room for bias there and similarly our judgments on this there's room for bias if we're saying we, we wouldn't want to give up this stuff right. in this situation
0: so, so what you're saying is that one reason people might look for these kinds of reason not to give aid is that you know, they are either consciously or subconsciously Worried about their self-interest. They don't like the idea they might have to give up.
1: Yeah, I, I, oh, I think that that's right. And I also think that's um, uh, very reasonable. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I understand uh, where they're coming from. Okay. Uh, there's a philosopher, uh, Peter Unger, uh, from NYU, who uh, took uh, this uh, thought experiment of Peter Singer's and really ran with it in a book called Living High and Letting Die.
0: Living High and Letting Die.
1: Yes, uh, Our Illusions of Innocence is the subtitle and he uh, he went from kind of a, an example much like the drowning child example to an example much like uh, the, uh, uh, the development aid example and he tried to isolate all of these factors that people could appeal to and they could say well the person's very close to you physically and then he has another example where uh, you, uh, the, the person's actually very distant. Um, right, you have a commu- button you can press. Exactly. You're communicating right. on a radio to them, and it turns mm-hmm. out that you're the only person who could help them and so on. And, and he shows that our intuitions still say you need to save this person. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there are versions where you say, well, what if about, uh, one difference with aid is that there's more people in the causal chain. Um, it's not just you and then the child or the, the, the adult or whoever. Um, And so he shows that actually you can come up with examples where there's more people in the causal chain and it still very much feels like it would be wrong to not help. And then he has examples where there's kind of messy causality and he shows that it still uh, feels like this. And he has examples where there's uh, uh, no uh, unique savior. Uh, So it's not the case that every uh, uh, person who's in need could be saved by a particular individual. Instead, for example, you're walking past this pond and there are many people basking in the sun uh, and they're not saving this child. Um, and does that, and then you just decide to walk on by because you realize there are a whole lot of other people there. Does that make walking on by okay? And again, it feels to most people that it doesn't. So a lot of these things that we try to draw a distinction on, a principled thing, uh, don't seem to work. Uh, they don't seem to actually be able to explain it. And uh, after exploring this in, in great and very interesting depth in his book, uh, Peter Unger, I think, reluctantly concludes uh, that we really have these uh, strong obligations. Uh, a really nice thing about this argument that, uh, by Singer and Unger is that it 's uh while it 's connected to consequentialism in the sense that it 's thinking seriously about consequences it 's not a uh, consequentialist argument uh, because it doesn 't show that you if you, uh, that you have to uh, you can only come up with this argument if you only care about consequences right. um, instead anyone who thinks that it matters at least somewhat what happens when we do things, which surely is you know very sensible right. uh seems to get drawn to this conclusion um, he 's just got a consistency argument that. In common sense, uh, you don't need to have to be thinking about a complex theory. Just in common sense, uh, yeah, you're doing wrong if you don't save this child in the situation. Um, and and also in common sense, it seems like it's an analogous case. Uh, and then there's this other case, uh, with the case of uh, donating to a charity, uh, where our intuition goes against that. So we have an inconsistency between two different intuitions, and the question is, how do we resolve that inconsistency? Is there some way that we can uh, rescue our intuitions? And that's where it really... So a, a,
0: a blogger called Atheist Missionary, on uh, uh, that's uh, his or her Twitter handle, mm-hmm. uh, asked me to ask you about this specific idea that the reason why we don't do enough for developing countries is that we lack empathy. We that we uh, we just are unable to. Whereas a child in a pond, we we can empathise with their situation and put it, uh, and understand that we need to help. That we that we seem to be unable to. Summon that kind of empathy for the plight of people in developing countries. Is there, uh, the question was, is, can, is there something we can do to make people more empathetic? To, to the, if, that's, if that's the ingredient that's missing, perhaps that isn't... So
1: I think that that probably is a large part of the missing ingredient, uh, is, that, uh, is this issue with empathy. And it's much easier to empathise with people who are closer to you. I mean, someone in the same room as you, it's very easy. Uh, and as they become more distant, particularly if you have very little contact with them or perhaps no contact at all, and and, uh, then uh, there's a case of uh, uh, treating them just like a statistic. Uh, And and you mentioned that there might be some fear that the types of people who who are willing to do calculations about these things, like myself, are the types of people who are treating people as statistics. But I think actually uh, it's the type of people who who don't feel the pull, um, uh, who are treating people more like mere statistics, uh, whereas... uh, Uh, people who are willing to calculate and think about cost-effectiveness trying to uh, treat these people as they would treat people uh, in the same room as them and that they know that it's difficult to have that empathy for all seven billion people in the world and to to really feel all of that so they try to work out if i did feel that empathy what would it entail of me Um, you know and then to try to do what what you would do were you to feel that empathy
0: that 's a great point that 's a great point so one uh, and I just want to touch on this briefly because i mm-hmm. I think that some people will be thinking about it is this is the distinction between action and inaction, and moral philosophers move quite quickly to the idea that there 's a moral equivalence between the consequences of what you do and the consequences of what you don 't do mm-hmm. that we should we should treat those equally M- many people find that. Contrary to common sense, they 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 feel that there's there's kind of there's something different between doing something that hurts somebody and not doing something that could have saved somebody. <clears> for example, where are you on that? What's your what's your
1: answer? So, in terms of uh, it's a it's a slightly tricky question. Uh, so I would say that uh, when it comes to what we should do, uh, that there really isn't much distinction between uh, action and inaction, and technically I would say there is no difference. Uh, And there are a whole lot of examples that philosophers use to try to uh, spell this out. Uh, So one example concerns uh, two different people. Uh, One person uh, wants to uh, kill uh, their uh, young nephew because they stand to inherit a lot of money if he dies, and so they go into the bathroom where he is and uh, see he's playing in the water and hold his head underwater and uh, and drowns him. That's the first person. The second person is in a very similar situation with their own nephew, um, and they go into the bathroom to drown their nephew and uh, find that he's already struggling with, and he's slipped and he's underwater and he's drowning and they could just pull him out of the water um, but they decide not to and they just wait in the room until he dies and then leave the room uh, and I think for a lot of us our intuition is actually pretty similar about these people uh, that uh, that what's going on here is that it's more to do with the intentions of the people and so on as to understanding this um, in general uh, there are some differences between action and inaction uh, just to do with uh, if you you know go out and murder someone, as opposed to not saving someone's life, um, you're probably a much nastier person and the type of person who is uh, going to cause a lot of problems for society uh, in various sorts, and the type of person you shouldn't kind of leave your children with, and mm. and all of these things are, are definitely true. But there's a separate question about how bad the different things are, and I think that uh, that the actions of both of these, uh, the murderer and the would-be murderer in that example, are pretty similar. You can have other cases where you could imagine that uh, something, uh, someone's in a situation where they're told, uh, if uh, you know we've we've captured someone and we're going to kill them, if you remain completely still for the next minute, um, if you do anything else, uh, we'll let them go, uh, and then the person remains completely still for that minute. Uh, it, it, that's interesting because it's a case of inaction; right. they do nothing, um, but it's they're doing nothing which causes this person to die very very clearly. And what seems to be interesting is that. What, what felt odd about that situation is because that doing nothing was very singled out. They had to go to a lot of effort to do nothing in that case, and so it seems like our intuitions not so much to do with uh, whether an act um, is you know is active versus passive, but is more did they go to a lot of effort to single out that course of action, and it, right. and it seems in this case they did. Uh, but I I certainly uh, uh, would hold a lot more contempt uh, for someone who killed hundred people uh, than for someone who uh, uh, merely. Uh, failed to save 100 people you would i would uh oh i wasn't expecting
0: that okay uh
1: because there's a separate question from how bad are the actions in terms of their overall effects uh to a question of uh what does it say about the character of these people and uh and so on i think that uh, okay you it certainly i mean it, the Person who kills hundred people is going to be a lot nastier than the other person. Uh, whether nastiness is what you know ethics is really all about is a different thing. I don't. That's think it is. So you know, you I certainly would, think that they would be a lot nastier, and I would dislike them.
0: So the content of somebody's character isn't equivalent to the moral value of the, the, the sum, the sum of the their moral choices. I,
1: I think that's right. Uh, although it, it is very interesting as to look at exactly how much we could achieve. Uh, so uh, while the Figures for how much it costs to save a life uh, vary quite a bit uh, as we get more evidence on these things. Uh, recently, the figures for um, saving a life from uh, uh, people who are suffering from tuberculosis uh, through the uh, DOTS program uh, was around about $250 uh, for saving a life. And on that figure, uh, the average person living in the UK, so the median income earner in the UK, uh, could, if they wished, with their salary while still uh, uh, living a uh, reasonable life, certainly by world standards, uh, could save uh, more than a thousand lives uh, from tuberculosis. And so what they, uh, so more than 50% of the population of of Britain could save actually more than 1,200 lives, which is the number I picked because it's the number of lives uh, Oscar Schindler saved uh, in World War II, and is generally thought to be uh, a very heroic uh, person in a time of heroes and villains where uh, there were terrible things going on, but also uh, amazing opportunities for heroism. And it's very interesting to see that actually uh, you know, most people on the street uh, could uh, achieve that level of benefit for other people. Uh, and that's, interestingly, both a case of saving um, rather than a case of saving versus killing or something. Uh, and to try to reflect on this and, and try to reconceive the world in these terms and try to think about what's going on I find uh, very challenging and also very interesting and to try to see, why don't we talk about that? Why isn't there a big public discussion about the fact that uh, we all could, uh, could do as much good as Oscar Schindler um, uh, and yet uh, we tend not
0: to. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader from the Centre for Global Development and my guest today is Toby Ord, a moral philosopher at Oxford University. So we've been talking about the ethical duty for people who have more money than they need to use it to improve the lives of people who have much less. And we'll be talking about this very question of uh, what kind of obligations we have and what Toby himself is doing uh, personally, and I think that's a remarkable story. Before we get to that, let me remind you that you can subscribe to Development Drums in iTunes free of charge so that it's downloaded automatically to your MP3 player or iPhone Um, whenever there's a new episode to listen to. And there's a Facebook page for Development Drums where you can suggest future episodes, who we should talk to, questions you want me to ask. Uh, So please go to Facebook and search for Development Drums. So let's, Toby, concentrate on this idea that we've, we've talked about the idea that there's a moral obligation for everybody to be concerned about improving the welfare of other people in the world, that that, um, whether it's through action or inaction, if we could give up, uh, in the Peter Singer example is a a suit Mm -hmm. to save a life, you know, $2,000, we should do it. And you just gave this very compelling example that the average citizen in the UK, on a median income, um, could quite easily give up enough money to save the same number of people as Oscar Schindler saved mm-hmm. so is it your view that citizens who are in that position do in, uh, do in fact have a moral duty to do that or that they would be heroes if they did it?
1: Well uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, I, mean, I suppose you could have both of those things but uh, my view would be more that uh, that they have a duty to do it. Uh, this is uh, my personal view on the matter and, uh, and my view as a philosopher uh, however uh, I think that there are a lot of talks about uh, these things where that ends up being the conclusion. They say we could, you know, we could all be uh helping a lot, but we're not. Um we're very bad people. Um let's all go home and feel bad about ourselves uh, as the conclusion. Uh whereas what I think is much more important at that point is to say maybe we should do this. Uh you know, I'm going to do this. Uh this, you know, why why aren't people doing this? I I'm, I'm going to uh going to start doing this and see if other people want to uh uh, join with me and uh, and do a similar thing, uh, and to try to think of it more in terms of empowering people uh, to achieve more of what they value. Uh, so, a lot of people, uh, if they think about different professions, might think about, say, a firefighter, and imagine someone who, uh, at a few stages in their lives, uh, you know, went into a. Uh, uh, burning building and, uh, and saved uh, you know, two people here and one person there and three people there and ended up saving ten lives over the course of their career and to think you know that's really quite amazing and if, in terms of the things I value in my life uh, that's the kind of life I would have wanted to have led a life where I achieved things like that uh, and then uh, but we often systematically fail to achieve much bigger things which we could achieve at much less sacrifice and so it seems uh, you know <laughs> why, why not do that if we can get even more for even less cost uh, you know, it sounds like a very obvious thing to do, uh, but we get stuck. Uh, so I've been trying to, uh, in, you know, to convince myself, and I, I've succeeded for myself, uh, to, uh, uh, to take these things seriously and, and, and uh, try to step up to the plate and, and do uh, much more of what I could be doing, and also to, uh, to see who else wants to do that. Obviously, many people were doing this type of thing before I came along, uh, but, but I, I did want to, uh, to try to uh, you know, encourage more people to do
0: it. So tell us about what, what it is exactly you are doing.
1: Sure. Uh, So uh, in light of these figures about uh, the uh, effectiveness of the most effective uh, aid programs, and I should stress that those figures uh, that I talked about were figures within health, uh, and it's not clear that health is the most effective thing we could focus on, but it is something that has very good evidence about what are the best things and what are the least good things, and somewhere that uh, uh, if you want to just pick out the best things, it looks quite plausible for finding them. Um but I don't think that it's it's obvious that it, that health is the the whole story um anyway though uh, in light of uh of that just how good the best things were um compared to what I would spend my money on for myself uh you know what I spend four dollars on compared to an entire year of healthy life uh is uh is just you know so there's no comparison i mean it's less than going to a cinema for an hour or two uh and uh so clearly we could achieve much more um quite easily a factor of a thousand more we could achieve for other people if if we compare it to what would you spend a few thousand dollars to give yourself an extra year of healthy life well of course Uh, so uh, we can do thousands of times more for people uh, in other countries Uh, so taking that insight um, led me to think well I need to uh, to donate a lot of my money Uh, and then taking the insight that uh, that within aid there are some Uh, programs which are a lot less effective than others, I also thought it's really important that it goes to the most effective things. Uh, So I set up uh, an organisation called Giving What We Can. Uh, And Giving What We Can is a society of givers uh, who have each pledged uh, to give at least 10% of their income until they retire uh, to whichever causes uh, or whichever charities uh, they think can most effectively help people in poor countries. And so uh, no one gives uh, us any money uh, they just pledge to give it directly to the organisations they want to help. Uh, but it's got these twin aims uh, to give more and to give the money more effectively and together to have much more impact. Uh, and quite realistically, uh, many people could uh, could give, if you look at the say average figures for the UK, uh, could give 10 times as much as they're giving uh, to uh, uh, global issues and could often give that money uh, more than 10 times as effectively as they're currently giving it, uh, to multiply their overall impact for the uh, poorest and most vulnerable people in the world by a factor of 100. So that's it's very realistic for, for many people.
0: So it's very realistic for people to have 100 times more impact by both giving more and giving better. Yes. You yourself, I've seen interviews with you in the newspapers, have a remarkable commitment, which goes beyond the 10%. Commitment uh, that that your group, giving what we can, is that what it's called? Yes. Giving what we can uh, recommends. Well, well, tell some, tell, oh, and I don't want to yes. pry. So if you no, don't. no,
1: no, no that, by, by all means. Uh, so uh, particularly, uh, I was very influenced by uh, Peter Singer's arguments, uh, and as a uh, student in philosophy, actually uh, finishing my uh, doctorate, and started to, to take this very seriously. Uh, and some other uh, very influential philosophers, like uh, Thomas Poggi, have uh, some similar, uh, very strong views on this. And uh, I thought, uh, yeah, I, I should give more than just a, a fraction of my income or a smallish fraction of my income. And uh, I should give, uh, you know, start at, uh, with my first dollar and uh, keep giving until uh, uh, I get down to some point where it's less clear that uh, uh, that I can uh, do more good by giving more um, and that it wouldn't actually be meaning that I can't you know, live close to work anymore and end up spending longer trying to, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I've tried to do this. Uh, I'm not sure that I've found the right level yet. I may well be, uh, be uh, uh, not giving away enough money. Uh, you're worried that you're not giving away enough rather yeah, than giving... Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not too worried that I'm giving away too much at the okay. moment. Uh, uh, but I'm, uh, I've made a commitment to give away everything above £18,000 per annum, uh, which is about the median uh, income in the UK. Uh, and that's to give that away everything above £18,000 after tax. Uh, to uh, uh, the most effective uh, aid organisations that I know of. And uh, over my life, uh, I've worked out that I'll earn about £1.5 million. Um, this is a calculation I'd encourage everyone to do, um, as it really helps you to see the scale of things. And you can do
0: that on your website.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, well, working out how much you learn in your career is a bit trickier, because mm-hmm. you have to think a bit about how it's going to go up over time and so on if you're not already at the peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's just in today's terms. Um, and then uh, I also worked out uh, how much I needed to uh, to keep living uh, as a graduate student uh, in Oxford, having uh, a very good quality of life. With all of the things that really matter in life, uh, I have. Uh, so I have a fantastic relationship uh, with uh, Bernadette, my wife, and I have uh, access to uh, all of the kind of great works of literature that one could ever want to read, actually for free because you can get them at libraries. Um, it, despite being one of the most valuable things uh, in terms of people's leisure. Uh, and access to kind of you know many great works of music and so on, which at only a few hundred years ago would have been uh, you 'd have to own your own uh, uh, orchestra in order to uh, uh, hear these things in your own room, uh, but now we uh, we have access to we 're very wealthy in uh, historical terms and world terms, uh, so I have these great things, and i thought well okay i 've got all this stuff already, um, so what if I just kept living on a similar income to that? Uh, how much would I be able to donate over my life, and I worked out i 'd be able to. Uh, uh, of the one and a half million pounds to give away about a million of those pounds and to keep about 500,000 pounds over my life. Uh, So at the moment, uh, I'm uh, donating about 40% of my income, uh, so 40%. And uh, that's going to increase, though, over time uh, to be uh, in total about two thirds. Um, But in the later part of my life, uh, it will go over 100% uh, because I will be Uh, not needing the kind of buffer in my savings. So this takes into account all of the savings and retirement and uh, money and everything like that. It's a bit easier to to do something as uh, as bold as this in a country like the UK, uh, where we have uh, your children's... uh, um, uh, education is uh, is going to get covered, uh, at least to some extent. And we have the National Health Service. Uh, we have the National Health Service. Uh, so these things uh, do make it easier. It does depend on the country you're living in, uh, and it also depends upon the, the town you're in and things like this and the climate and uh, other features. Uh, and I definitely think that it's going to be easier for me than it will be for some other people, which is why I've tried to give a lot more than 10% uh, to say, well, since it's easier for me, and since uh, people in rich countries are in... Uh, rather arbitrarily in a position of, uh, of great power, with great wealth, uh, compared to uh, people in other countries, uh, we shouldn't just uh, feel bad about ourselves. Uh, we it's should use different. that opportunity, that power, uh, to do as much as we can to help people.
0: Have you worked out roughly how many lives that's likely to save, or what difference that's likely to make?
1: Uh, it's, it's a bit tricky to work out. In, in terms of these uh, quality-adjusted life years, uh, I think it should be able to uh, achieve about uh, 500,000 quality adjusted life years uh, over my life. Uh, so, uh, so 500 uh, millennia of uh, life at full health. Uh, and a standard way to convert between quality adjusted life years and life saved is to assume that when you save someone's life, maybe they're somewhere in the middle of their life uh, and you might save something like 30 years of life uh, so, is to divide that by thirty, and then you'd get something um, over uh, ten thousand lives. Around uh, that ten thousand lives um, saved. Well, saved. Uh, I mean, right? No one's life is uh, but, saved forever. Yeah. Um, so, um, and also, uh, you know, I haven't managed to achieve that yet. Uh, so, you know, we'll see whether I uh, manage to follow through with this. Although I've managed to uh, quite successfully, I think, tie myself to the mast uh, and make it so that it'd be very embarrassing right. for me to stop doing this. Uh, so, I think that that's quite unlikely. Um, as the cost to me is actually very small. Um, financially, the cost is quite large. Uh, but as I said, in terms of actually sacrificing things that really matter in someone's life, I think it's very small. And then the peace of mind is actually uh, quite valuable. So
0: I know there are lots of people listening who would want me to say you know, how impressed I am, <laughs> and I'm sure other people are at, at that commitment. I'm also sure that people want me to ask you what Bernadette thinks about
1: Oh, yes, Uh, I should have said. Uh, She's uh, uh, completely uh, uh, engaged with this and has uh, made a similar commitment herself. Uh, So uh, she's committed to give at least 10% of her income and, moreover, to give away everything above £25,000 per annum. And uh, she's a a doctor uh, working in the NHS. And uh, uh, so uh, giving away everything above £25,000 will actually mean something. Right, Uh, She'll be able to donate more money than I will. And uh, she's also noticed that she'll be able to... uh, uh, help people more and produce more benefit in her life uh, by donating uh, part of her salary than she'll be able to achieve uh, as a doctor, right. uh, which is a somewhat odd experience to notice. Uh, but, uh, but she's uh, impressed that she can, in that sense, uh, more than double the impact she's having in her life, uh, not just you know, what she's doing through her career, but uh, what that enables her to earn in order to donate to uh, even more effective ways to help people.
0: We're going to need to wrap up soon, but I would like just to explore this idea of giving more effectively. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a really remarkable commitment you're making in terms of the, the amount of money you're giving, but there is also something quite interesting about this rationality about focusing on giving in ways that have the most impact. And one thing that I observe working in the development industry is that, yeah, there's a tendency to say, well, there are lots, all these different good causes, and really, it's very hard to distinguish between different peoples rights and experiences and you know we have to um we have to help everybody and so we're going to spread money across different things that are that are good causes mm. you're partly pushing against that by that our discussion about quality adjusted life is and saying that we need to focus much more on the things that have the biggest impact tell us how you're doing that and why that's important
1: yes uh, so that is right uh, i should say that uh uh it's Mm -hmm. There are some distinctions between acting on a personal level and acting on a governmental level or uh, someone else who has access to very large amounts of funds. Uh, For example, uh, it could be the case that if someone has enough funds, uh, then they can uh, fund a uh, very effective program so uh, adequately uh, that it uh, fulfills its mission. Um, Or it it solves all of the easy cases of this disease. Mm -hmm. And the final cases which are left are actually not that cost effective uh, to treat compared to other things, which are now the most cost effective. Uh, So if you're looking on a very large margin, uh, as economists would say, uh, then uh, it it can be quite a bit more complicated and having a more diversified kind of portfolio makes more sense. Uh, When it comes to uh, individuals, though, I think that um, finding the thing uh, which is the most effective and donating your money uh, just to that uh, is uh, is the best approach. And uh what I try to do in order to avoid this type of death by a thousand cuts of uh, of being asked all the time for uh, uh, for charity uh, or and having to feel that emotional burden of uh, a lot of people who make genuine uh requests of you for things which are really quite effective in national terms for example but mm-hmm. aren't the most effective in international terms uh, and also to avoid the uh, the challenges of uh Um, Going to the supermarket and agonizing about whether to buy the slightly cheaper version of something. Uh, What I do is just every year I work out um, uh, What I can live on for the next year set myself a budget and just live within that budget as if that was uh, Just the amount of money I have so it's no more difficult than living within your normal budget. You just uh, shrink that budget slightly Uh, and then to uh, uh, to also uh, Just once per annum uh, think about where to divide up the money Uh, but it seems that when we think about investments for ourselves uh, we care a lot about how much you're going to get for your money um, uh, when we're going to get the product uh, and if you could go to, uh, to one store I mean we wouldn't have this, this conversation if, it was, if you were saying um, uh, I don't understand that when people go cl- to buy clothes uh, and one uh, shop uh, sells clothes for a thousand times as much as another uh, some people like you say that we should buy it from the shop that's a thousand times cheaper but I don't understand why that is uh, you know, no one would say that um, and it seems very natural. It's, it's, well, if you're going to spend the money, um, uh, you want to get uh, the most you can uh, for what you've got to offer. Uh, but when it comes to aid, uh, I think we just get a bit more confused because it's a bit more abstract and uh, we don't see the connection as clearly between uh, uh, what we pay and what benefits are produced. And that's due to one of these areas where, uh, where uh, the aid sector doesn't work like a market um, that has some advantages and has some disadvantages. And one disadvantage um, is that it doesn't function like that high street example right. I just gave. Uh, you'd hope that it would be impossible to have a, a world where some of these organizations are a thousand times more effective than others. At least I would hope that. Uh, because uh, we, you know, we why, just why would all we, the money exactly, right. why, can... why would we get uh, less than 0.1% of, our, um, of what our money's worth? Um, why wouldn't we just choose to get 100% of what our money's worth? You'd think that they would go out of business in some way. Right. And maybe once we've we'd filled in all the funding opportunities of the most effective ones, th- th- those things would spring back into life. Right. Uh, but we don't get that. And I think one of the reasons we don't get it is because of this disconnect, uh, that the uh, the person who buys uh, the uh, aid isn't the person who receives it. And so we don't get that feedback from them.
0: Right. So they're, they're essentially informed about the fact that they could have gone to the next door shop and bought I, I think so. and I said, a thousand times more lives.
1: Yeah, I certainly would have been ill-informed about this before I saw these statistics. I was really quite shocked by it. And I think that it's really valuable to do these uh, cost-effectiveness analyses and to try to find out a global prioritisation and to really think about our global priorities, not just kind of blindly uh, stumble around there. Uh, So, uh, yes, I mean, I I think that we we should help more people rather than fewer. And in, in part, my approach to this is to think in terms of a recipient-centered view of the ethics of uh, of uh, donation rather Mm. than a donor-centered view Um, and it could be that it's perhaps displays certain kind of virtues of character if you don't think about it this much and you don't calculate so much and instead you feel more of just the the kind of sheer warmth of joy of uh, connection with people when you give right but that's but surely the benefits of that whatever they are are not as big as you know thousands more people dying uh And you might say, well, it's great to have spontaneity. And you think, well, it is great, but it's also great to have thousands of people living who otherwise would have died from bad diseases. Um, And so I think that we really want to move it away from the donor uh, to think in terms of the recipients and think less about uh, ourselves as donors. I was
0: talking to somebody last night who got very shirty when I was pressing him on why the organisation he works for was investing in something that is highly cost ineffective. And he just thought it was improper for me to... You know, that was how they wanted to spend their money and And he couldn't get it you know he, he found it offensive that I was pressing him on why they didn't spend their money on something more useful. People yes. seem to feel they have a right to squander aid money on stuff that isn't that great uh,
1: Yes, <laughs> so tell
0: me how you do decide so wh- who have you given money to, and how did you arrive at that?
1: Good question uh, i've uh, donated money to to quite a few different groups. Uh, uh, two of them are groups that focus on deworming. Um, and uh, so trying to avoid uh, various neglected tropical diseases, uh, particularly in uh, school age mm-hmm. children uh, in Africa and India. And uh, I came across that by reading through these reports about global prioritization, trying to look at, at what are the most cost-effective things, seeing that deworming is, uh, is highly cost-effective. Um, it's a similar level to uh, the most effective malaria-net type treatments. Um, and uh, deciding uh, to... Uh, Donate uh, uh, quite a bit of money to uh, a couple of organisations. Uh, Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, or SCI, which mm-hmm. uh, operate out of London, and Deworm the World, which uh, operate out of Washington, and uh, to, uh, to to fund them. Uh, also, I gave uh, um, I think about a thousand pounds to uh, a group uh, called uh, JPal, um, who uh, are based at MIT, and they focus on doing. Uh, randomized control trials to try to work out which aid interventions are the most effective and i thought that was really interesting to donate to them as a meta charity you know the type of organization who are improving the process that i'm relying upon um, as that could be uh, extremely valuable as well
0: and listeners to development drums who haven't listened to my interview with rachel glenister who's the executive director of j Powell, may want to run back a few episodes and listen to that Bill Gates once said that his bedtime reading was the um, Disease Control Priorities Project report, which is a great doorstep of a book. Um, Many people listening to this won't have time or inclination to read it. Does your website um, uh, help people give people the the summary that they need to know, or is there some is there Uh, some pre-digested version of this uh, knowledge that they can access? uh,
1: Yes. uh, So. Uh, I was very impressed by this uh, uh, DCP2, uh, it's the second edition of this report, um, which Bill Gates uh, partly funded after being so impressed by his bedtime reading. Uh, and uh, uh, what we've tried to do is to lean heavily upon reports like this. Um, the WHO has one as well called WHO Choice. Uh, and to try to uh, look at this research done by more than 500 researchers to try to aggregate all of this information. Uh, But the report is quite hard to read uh, and uh, we've tried to make it much more clear on our website, which is givingwhatwecan.org in the resources section. uh, We go through, we have some very nice and easy to follow bar charts and, uh, and summary pages about some of these most effective interventions, what they're about, um, which organizations have we found which work on those on those uh, such that you can actually donate uh, to help them. Uh, Rachel Glenister uh, uh, is, uh, has been uh, very helpful and uh, is a member of uh, Given What We Can, uh, as are uh, Peter Singer and Thomas Poggy, who I mentioned earlier.
0: Toby, Ord, thank you very much for coming on Development Drums and thank you for all you're doing to help people in the developing world.
1: Oh, well, uh, again, uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be able to talk to people about these issues.
0: I've been talking today to Toby Ord, a moral philosopher and the president of Giving What We Can. If you want to find out more about Giving What You Can, visit the website www.givingwhatwecan.org. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and Development Drums is produced by Anna Scott. Please do visit our Facebook page and thanks for listening.